Okay, so preaching about the Eucharist for, for the entire month of October on Sundays anyways. And, uh, and then, of course, we also instituted last week this, this time of silence after communion. So uh, omitting the communion song. And um, I just recite a little antiphon, a little one-liner from Scripture. And then we pray in, in the pews. So th there's these prayer cards that you can use if you need something to guide your prayer. There's, there's, I actually put more, pews, uh, more cards in the pews this weekend, uh, just in case we were running a little short on some of the pews. So anyway, so there's that. Okay, last week, we started by talking about how the Last Supper is a fulfillment of the Passover meal that began way back in the book of Exodus. When, when God sees his people enslaved in Egypt and um, he wants to set them free and he brings about all these different plagues and then he finally brings out the last one, the death of the firstborn. And the people are preserved from experiencing that plague by taking a lamb, an unblemished lamb, slaughtering it, sprinkling its blood on the doorposts of their house and eating its flesh. And then from there, the, the Lord preserves them from death and then he tells them to, to do this as a memorial meal. So every year they would celebrate the Passover, but they would celebrate it not as like something that took place back then. They would celebrate it as though it was something that they were experiencing here and now, like, like sort of divine time travel, we could say. So pointing then to say like clearly the, the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated was a Passover meal. And this Passover meal from the time of Moses up to the time of Jesus, it, it went through a couple of different or a, a few different developments. Um, and it's not that it was a completely different meal. It's just that they ritualized it because they wanted to, to make sure that they got it right. They wanted to make sure that their their memory of it was was the kind of memory that that really made it present and helped them to enter into the mystery. So they added some certain elements to it. They, they, they wrote out a script so that they, when they were celebrating the meal, it was time to explain certain things to, to the children or to each other. And so there was a script that they had to follow. There are certain elements that were added to the meal. Of course, they always had to have a lamb present. But, but they also then instituted uh, this thing where they had to have four different cups of wine during the meal that were drunk at specific points of, of time during the meal so that they knew there was a transition going on from, from the, the beginning, the introductory type of things to then, the, okay, well, this is the cup of wine that we drink when, when, we're, in, when we're explaining things and explaining the purpose of this night. And then there was a cup of wine that they drank after the meal. And then there was a final cup of wine that they drank to kind of conclude everything. So they, they had these, these cups of wine, and they're, they're important because we actually heard about one of them in our second reading. So St. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So the cup of blessing was one of the, the cups of wine that they would have during the meal. They called it the cup of blessing. It was actually called, technically speaking, the, the barakah cup. So, so they would drink it at the end of the meal after the supper was, was ended. Which, which it, I mean, one, that's fascinating so that Paul is making this connection between the Last Supper and the Passover meal. But then two, we, we hear this every Sunday, every time we come to Mass. What, when the priest, he takes the bread and he says, okay, Jesus, while they were eating, while they were eating, he would explain this. He, he said, this is my body. And that was actually something that they did during the last, the, the, the Passover meal. They, after they drank, drank the second cup of wine, the, the, the father of the house would then go about explaining all of the different elements of the food that they were eating, including explaining the unleavened bread that they were doing. This is something that Jesus does, but he also does it a little bit differently, right? He takes the bread and he says, this is my body. But then we hear this. When supper was ended, so after the meal, he took the chalice of wine, which was the third cup, the cup of blessing, and he said, take this and drink of it. This is the chalice of my blood. Right? So it's just clear. Paul understands this. The church understands this, that, that when Jesus is doing this, he's participating in a Passover meal, but he's, he's making some significant changes. 
He says, this is my body. Instead of talking about the flesh of the lamb that would have been on the table, he's saying, no, I am the lamb of God. This is my flesh. Eat this flesh of this lamb, of the new Passover. This, this is my blood. This is the new blood of the new lamb of the new Passover. How we believe as, as Catholic Christians that, that the, the bread and the wine, it really does change into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And we're going to talk more about this uh, later on in this homily. But, but to understand, like Paul understood this. He says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Another word that we could, we could put in here for participation is communion. Is it not a communion with the blood of Christ? Communion means it's coming into one with the blood of Christ. So if it comes into one with the blood of Christ, what does that mean? It is the blood of Christ. The same thing, is it not a communion with the body of Christ? It is one, it is the body of Christ. Paul understands this, the church has always taught this. The majority of Christians throughout history have taught this. And it's not that it's like a, 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 a popularity contest. It's just that, that we can see from the beginning that, that this has been what, what Christians have understood. This miraculous thing, this, this, this bread changes in a miraculous movement of God's grace into something that is so incredible, if it's true, it's so incredible. Now, now what I, what I want to sort of propose um, this, this, this morning is this question, or a couple of questions. Okay, if this is true, that Jesus at the Last Supper, he tells them, eat my flesh. And then in a separate way, he says, drink my blood. And if we believe that, that we're actually doing this, that we're actually eating his flesh and we're drinking his blood, doesn't that sound like cannibalism? And, and it does sound like cannibalism, right? It, it, it does sound that way. Or, or if it's not that, then, then it's like, okay, well, there must be some sort of a misinterpretation because, because cannibalism is not good and Jesus wouldn't ever command us to, to commit that, that thing, to, to eat someone else's flesh. So there must be a misinterpretation about what's going on here. And in fact, a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters would say this. They would say, like, it's, no, it's just symbolic. Jesus he doesn't literally mean that we're supposed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It's, it's just a symbol. But it's really just bread. It's, it's not beyond that. And, and of course, we, we disagree with them on this, and so we want to understand, like, what in the world is going on? So to, to get at what's going on, I think it's going to be helpful for us. I know it's going to be helpful for us uh, to get back to the first reading, actually. So, so what's going on in the first reading? Moses, um, we, we hopefully know the story. Moses is the leader of God's people when he brings them out of Egypt. And, and as he leads them out of Egypt, what happens? They, they, they run into the Red Sea, they cross the sea, the sea on dry land, and then they're in the desert for 40 years while they wait for the Lord to lead them into the promised land. So while they're in the desert for 40 years, of course, that's a long time. So they get hungry, they get quite hungry, and they grumble against the Lord. And so the Lord provides for them miraculous bread from heaven. He says this, remember how for 40 years, the Lord your God has directed all of your journeying in the desert so as to test you by affliction and find out whether or not it was your intention to keep his commandments, right? So you're in the desert for so long because the Lord just wants to see your faithfulness. He wants to see whether you're going to be faithful to his commands. But then he says this, he therefore let you be afflicted with hunger and then fed you with manna, a food unknown to you and your fathers. So he, he provides for them every morning they wake up and on the ground there's this flaky bread-like stuff on the ground that they gather up and they can eat it. And, and they understand that it's a miracle of God's grace that, that they wake up and every morning it's there and it's there and it's, it's not like there were loaves of bread. The word manna itself means what is it? So there's a little bit of confusion about like, well, what exactly is this stuff? But they understood, the Lord said, this is bread from heaven. And so they gathered it and they ate it and they were able to, to be satisfied. They were able to be fed for 40 years while they're in the desert with this miraculous bread. So that's what, that's what the Lord provides. Now, here's a really important principle. Anytime God does something in the Old Testament, 
if there's a connection with it in the New Testament, in the Bible, the thing that God does in the New Testament is always better than what he does in the Old Testament. Always, right? So just to repeat that, to be really clear, if God does something in the Old Testament and he wants to make a connection with it in the New Testament, the thing that takes place in the New Testament is always better than what takes place in the Old Testament. Some examples. So maybe, maybe some of us know this story. Hopefully we all know this story, but maybe not. So God has Abraham, and Abraham has a son named Isaac. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only one, the one whom you love, and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. Right? God asks Abraham to kill his son as a sacrifice to the Lord God. So Abraham, he takes his son, his only one, the one that he loves, he takes him out to the mountain, he ties him up, and right as he's about to kill him, the angel of the Lord comes to him and he says, oh, hold on, I see, I see your faith now, right? This was a test of faith. I see your faithfulness, and because of your faithfulness, I don't want you to kill your son, but instead I'm actually going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world because of you. So that's what God does with Abraham and Isaac. In the New Testament, what happens? God sends his son, Jesus, his only one, the one whom he loves. And Jesus comes to do what? To sacrifice himself as an offering to God for our sins. The Lord allows this sacrifice to take place because why? Because it is a superior sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus is a better sacrifice, obviously, than the sacrifice of Isaac. Another example, Moses, he leads the people across what? Across the Red Sea. So they cross through water to get into freedom from slavery, right? By crossing through water, they escape slavery and they find freedom. In the New Testament, is there any way that we cross through water that's through water that we come to freedom? Of course, in baptism, right? When, when we are baptized in water, what happens? We are saved from spiritual slavery to the devil. So there's a, there's a freedom from a physical slavery in the Old Testament, but then God brings about a better kind of freedom in the New Testament. And it comes both of them through water. There's the connection there. More, more example. We could go through all kinds of different examples where in the Old Testament they have King David, the, the great king over God's people Israel. And then he is ultimately fulfilled by one, of his, by one of his heirs, Jesus, who is a son of David, who is the king not over just God's people Israel, but over the whole world, over the entire universe. Right? There's a connection of kings, but Jesus is the better king in the New Testament. The, the, Adam and Eve, God creates Adam and Eve without sin. He creates them to have a communion with him. But instead, what happens? They're tempted in the, in the garden and they fall. They, they rebel against the Lord by sinning against him in the garden. In the New Testament, what happens? Jesus comes, who St. Paul says is a new Adam. And there's another woman there, Mary, who's like a new Eve. These two do not fall. These two do not rebel against the Lord, but instead they do what? They surrender to the Lord, to his will. Right? These, these, there's so many different connections that we, that we could talk about. So whenever we actually read the Old Testament, if we read it, and we come across something that seems incredible, it seems worthwhile to ask the question, I wonder if there's a connection with this in the New Testament. And if there is, I would expect that the connection in the New Testament is going to be better than what I'm reading about in the Old Testament. Hopefully that makes sense. Because when we talk about the manna in the desert, this miraculous bread that God gives to the Israelites in the desert, I, we could approach it and say, I wonder if there's a connection between the manna and something in the New Testament. And in fact, we actually don't have to wonder because we heard Jesus talk about this. What, what did we say? He says, your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. 
And then what? The bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. You see, if, if we're talking about miraculous bread in the Old Testament, and if there's a connection with that miraculous bread in the New Testament, which Jesus says that there is, then, then the bread that Jesus provides in the New Testament, it can't be symbolic. Because if it's symbolic, that means that it's not even as good as the miraculous bread in the Old Testament. It doesn't, it's not consistent with the way that God communicates, with the way that God has interacted with the world throughout the scriptures. That the bread that Jesus provides, it has to actually be more miraculous than the miraculous bread that he provides in the Old Testament. And this miraculous bread that he provides, of course, is his flesh. And it's, it's not his dead flesh, right? Because what happens? Well, the flesh that, that we eat from him, it, it does what? It does something to us. It provides for us eternal life. He says, they ate it. They ate this miraculous bread, but they still died. But those who eat the miraculous bread that I provide, my flesh, they're never going to die. Why? What's going on? Well, what is the flesh of Jesus doing right now? It's living. Yes, there was a time when Jesus' flesh and his blood were separated from each other. And when he was on the cross and they pierced his side with, with, with a lance and the blood and the water flowed out so that his blood became separated from his flesh. But of course we know that Jesus rises from the dead. He rose from the dead and he lives forever. So now his body and his blood are fully united, fully alive, so that when he gives us the Eucharist, he's not giving us his dead body and his dead blood, but he is giving us his body and his blood together, fully alive. So that actually, it, when we receive the Eucharist, whether, whether in just the Eucharistic host or whether we are just to drink the, the precious blood of Jesus, when I receive one of them, I receive both because they're not dead, but they are fully alive. This is one of the things when people, people want to ask, like, Father, when are we going to bring the wine back to Mass? Well, one, I'd say it's not wine. It's the blood of Jesus. But two, it's not necessary. Now, sure, there, there can be some, some sort of a help of like, okay, well, this is what took place at the Last Supper, and so that, that's a helpful sign for me. But, but it's not necessary because when I receive just the host, just the body of Christ, I receive the full Christ, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus because he is fully alive in the Holy Eucharist. We have a fancy term that we use to describe this, and this, this term is transubstantiation. It's a fancy word that basically just means this, that even though the Eucharist still looks and smells and tastes and feels like bread and wine to my senses, that we believe that my senses are actually deceived, that there's a real change that has taken place on the altar so that the bread is no longer bread and the wine is no longer wine, but instead it has become fully the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. That these four senses are deceived, but there is one sense that is not deceived. And that one sense is our sense of hearing, where we hear Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, when he says to us, take this and eat it. This is my body. Take this and drink it. This is the chalice of my blood. When Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. The life that he's talking about is his own divine life. When we who are able to receive Holy Communion because we're in a state of grace, because we've gone to confession and repented of our sins, because we've avoided mortal sin, when we who come forward to receive Holy Communion, what happens? We become what we eat. We become the living presence of Jesus who is alive within us in the Holy Eucharist. 
This is the incredible gift that, that even, if we, even if we go through physical suffering and physical death, our spirit is alive because the body and blood of Jesus does not die and cannot die again. This is, this is a miracle that we have to allow ourselves to be caught up in. First, maybe it's a miracle that we have to allow ourselves permission to believe. Jesus, who changes water into wine in the Gospels. Jesus, who raises the dead to life. Jesus, who, who performs so many, he himself dies and comes back to life. Jesus, who performs so many miracles in the Gospels. He performs a miracle here on this altar, week after week after week, for you and for me. And we have to, we have to let ourselves believe this. We have to let ourselves not just believe it, but actually grow in devotion to it, to be caught up in the mystery of it. Because if this is true, if, if what I've just said is true, if what the church has always believed is true, can you think of anything better? I can't. I can't think of anything better than this. This is the kind of thing that I want to give my life for. This is the kind of thing that if I have to change my life, I'm ready to change my life for this. So I, just, I have a number of encouragements for us. The first thing is, is really simple. If you don't come to Mass every Sunday, you have to come to Mass every Sunday because we teach, we believe that you can't find this anywhere else, not in any, anything in the world, not in any Protestant churches. You can't find it anywhere except in the Catholic Church. So if you don't come to Mass every Sunday, you gotta come, you gotta come. But second, if you're not in a state of grace, if you haven't been to confession, and so you're not able to receive Holy Communion, go to confession. And if you don't believe that you need to go to confession, you just think you can receive Holy Communion because, because you think you have a right to it. Well, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks, actually. St. Paul has some strong words for you. Go to confession. Let your sins be wiped clean so that you can receive the full Christ in the Holy Eucharist. If you're not Catholic, consider becoming Catholic. If you're, if you're in a really difficult situation in life, you just, you, you, for whatever reason, you can't receive communion, don't be afraid to change your life so that you can receive Holy Communion, so that you can receive the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus. I, I invite you to consider whether you might be willing to come to Mass even more often than just on Sundays. Here in this parish and in Goodrich, we have Mass every Tuesday evening and we have an hour of Eucharistic adoration afterwards. I'd invite you to consider whether you might be willing to come to Mass on those Tuesday evenings. I know it's 20 miles to Goodrich, but I know that because I drive it when I come. It's going to be okay. I invite you at least when we have Mass here on Tuesday evenings to come to Mass and to be in the presence of Jesus. And, and this is the thing, like this is a mystery that is beyond compare, not only at Mass, but also beyond the Mass. Because we know this, or hopefully we know this, or maybe you've always wondered about this, that after Holy Communion is done, we take all of the leftover consecrated hosts, which are the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, we take those and we put them in this golden box, the tabernacle, so that the living presence of Jesus can remain with us in this church all the time. And so I actually invite you, if it's possible, to find a way to come to the church and pray and to be with Jesus who waits for you in the tabernacle. I know we keep our church locked. If, you want, if, you're, if you're convicted by this and you want to come, we will find a way to get you a key so that you can get your way into the church to spend time with the Lord Jesus in his Eucharistic presence who just simply waits and wants to spend time with you and with me. This, this is an incredible mystery. And if we allow ourselves to be caught up into it, it's the kind of mystery that can truly change our lives. It's the kind of mystery that can, that can give us the very life, the eternal life 
that Jesus has come to give.